This is WOWD Tacoma Park 94.3 FM, and this is the Artist Experience Radio Show. This is Sheila Blake. My partner and co-host, Tom Zanakis, is in Florida, and my husband, Peter, has agreed to join me for today's show. We were wondering what we could do for Pride Month, and I thought, let's celebrate Marston Hartley, a wonderful American painter whose work is an important part of the Phillips Collection. In 1995, Peter and I saw a show at the Phillips that was titled The American Modernists. In the American Grain, Arthur Dove, Marston Hartley, John Marin, Georgia O'Keeffe, and Alfred Stieglitz. The best way I can explain the category of American modernism is that modernist art has a tendency to abstraction. It's innovative, it's aesthetic, it's futuristic, and self-referential. Modernism includes visual art, literature, music, film, design, architecture, as well as lifestyle. It reacts against historicism, artistic conventions, and the institutionalization of art. So, this is the spirit in which we went to the Phillips, eager for some modernist insight. When I was young and free to look at art in my own pace and whim, if I saw two or three paintings that I liked a lot, I would proclaim that I loved that artist, even though there could be 90% of their work I didn't know about or understand. Marston Hartley is one of those artists. I loved his Mount Katahdin paintings, a series of a mountain in Maine on a lake, which I'd seen many times before. The mountain is dark red. Everything is heavy. Weird cloud shapes are moving across the top banners of a bright blue sky. It is kind of rough not like the Impressionist tradition of landscapes, and much more powerful. It's robust, like America. The talk by the young curator Stephen Phillips was one of those golden moments that opened my eyes. He told us that Hartley had been collected for many years by gay art collectors who recognized what others didn't. Right, we realized that until this moment, 1995, A central fact about Marston Hartley's work had been hidden, hushed, passed over, that the curators, in general, over the years, knowing that Hartley was a modernist genius, wanted to focus on that and not hurt his reputation. And that is, I guess, what would have happened, not hurt his reputation by mentioning that he was gay and that the paintings reflected that. It was so surprising to hear this. And it just fit in with what I was so interested in at that time, um, how Cezanne embedded hidden figures in his art, and they had a sexual nature, and the sexual nature was attraction to males. I've still never heard any curator say anything about this or seen it written. Um, I think it's obvious that curators don't want to distract people's attention away from the genius energy of the art, into gossip, and I and I get it. Once, once, you know, with Cezanne, once you see those sexual images, you can't stop looking for them, and it is distracting. 
Well, Hartley's figures weren't hidden. They were in plain sight. (laughs) (laughs) That's sort of the point, isn't it? I remember that Stephen Phillips told us that he was moving on from the Phillips, no relation, and that he wanted to work with more contemporary art. Well, as you probably know if you've listened to our Artist Experience show before, the Phillips Collection might be my all-time favorite museum, and I was amazed that anyone would want to move on from there. To me, that was the destination, because the Phillips has represented incomparable excellence. Since then, though, the Phillips has moved ahead from Impressionism and Modernism and has shown a lot more contemporary artists. One of the artists is Sean Scully, who's based in New York and Ireland. But his work, although it's abstract, it's secured in the European tradition in that there is a subject. The spirituality is the painting, the built construction, sometimes with paint, sometimes he cut and built and stacked canvases. And there is the materiality of the paint and the built canvases and the light seeping through that gives it a spirituality like Roald. Well, I'm not describing it very well, but in case you go to our Artist Experience Facebook page, you can see the pictures that we're talking about, and I hope you will. Well, it's these issues that base it in the 80s when artists were searching for the next steps forward. There was a show by the artist Joseph Marioni, who paints various size easel canvases with many liquid coatings of saturated color, very specific color, with so few variations that you have to embrace the most slight deviation in direction as the color slides down the canvas to the lower edge. The canvases were put in the gallery in relation to each other and were intended to speak to each other across the room. There was also a show of more experimental work by Richard Tuttle, for which he scoured the trash cans around DuPont Circle and made wall sculptures and constructions. Some of Tuttle's work seemed to be somehow constructed in a part of his brain that I couldn't access. I went a couple of times and finally put it on a shelf. So, in honor of Pride Month, I am inspired to do this show on Marston Hartley. And because the show at the Phillips had so many of his paintings, I was forced to admit that I didn't understand whole periods of his work and that I couldn't ignore them, especially the series of his military abstractions, which were made when he was living in Germany, and especially his pictures of powerfully built men with huge shoulders and small chiseled heads in skimpy speedos on the beach. And what our curator guide showed us was a painting of sailors dancing with women but looking over their shoulders at each other. And that, in the past 15 years, there had been a giant cultural awakening, and we could finally see these pictures in their totality. Hallelujah! When Hartley arrived in Germany with the euphoria of the impending First World War, he was thrilled to meet two German officers, Arnold Ronebeck, who is also a sculptor, and his tall blonde cousin, Karl von Freiburg. He joined them in Berlin. Karl von Freiburg became his lover and was killed early in World War I. Hartley expressed his grief in his German military series with arrangements of abstracted uniforms and symbols and medals of his regiment and referred to his lover in the initials KVF and the numerals 24, his age when he was killed. These paintings are nice. They're modern and good to look at, but if you don't know what's behind them, you're missing the meaning. After His lieutenant's death for the next three years, Hartley embraced Cubism and European modernism in a manner that placed him as one of America's most advanced artists of his generation. The critics agreed that this body of work ranks him shoulder to shoulder with the greatest European artists of that era. Cubists like Juan Gris and Paul Klee and Georges Braque, these paintings after being misinterpreted, or rather only interpreted formally, they were interpreted modernist, cubist influence, blah, 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 were now only now acknowledged as to why they were painted, that they were Hartley's expression of his deepest grief 
Maybe to cope with his grief, Hartley brought into, into this romance of war. There hadn't been a war in a long time, and the uniforms, the drums, the parades, the pageantry were there to seduce young men into this hell. And there is a naivete, a childishness in all this, and why not? It is the children, these young boys who were being recruited, and Hartley felt he had to disguise his romantic feelings with his ornaments of war. Right. You know, it occurs to me that there's, uh, at that time in Germany, uh, it wasn't just Hartley being naive, uh, that the whole society was uh, naive about, about what, what was about to come. Uh, that German intellectuals, artists, poets, were so many of them in favor of the war and looking forward to it as a, a great cleansing of, 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 you know, this society which had become so materialistic and so soft and, and uh, concerned with money. And um, th- it, there was a great belief that war was going to be a noble, elevating experience. And and, and not just Germany either. I think also in England and France, you know, everybody, a lot of support. Well, when Hartley returned to the U.S. from Berlin as a German sympathizer following World War I, and he created paintings with much German iconography, the homoerotic tones were overlooked as critics focus on the German point of view, and it's understandable that Hartley was disingenuous in arguing that there was no symbolism whatsoever. That's what he said. After World War I, the U.S. victory elevated our status as an international power, and it gave Americans self-confidence and a feeling of security by breaking with the artistic conventions that had been shaped After European traditions, American modernism marked the beginning of American art as distinct and autonomous. And this transition between Impressionism and Modernism is the foundation of the Phillips Collection. So Hartley painted prolifically for many years until his death in 1943. He went back and forth from realism to abstraction, but only so much as you know what the subject is in the abstraction and in the realism. And they, they always have subjects. And his use of the paint as material easily identifies his paintings, no matter what the obvious subject is. But the most fabulous seascapes, landscapes, to the most mundane still life subjects, a rose in a vase, a fish on a plate. His work was always his, but the Berlin paintings are for a long time what he was known for. So learning this, I understood why I had neglected whole areas of his work. Everyone else did too. Only in my case, it was the landscapes that I thought of as his work. And this way I had of only embracing a part of an artist's work is something I have learned to get past since I've been doing this show. You are listening to the Artist Experience Radio Show on WOWD 94.3 FM. We're talking about the artist Marston Hartley. Hartley's life was a circle. He was born in Lewiston, Maine in 1877, and he died in Ellsworth, Maine in 1943. Maine was with him all through his travels. It was both exhilarating and desolate. He was the youngest of nine children. His mother died when he was eight, and his father remarried four years later. He is said, said I was to know complete isolation from that moment forward. His family was soon divided, and Hartley was forced to live with an older sister in Auburn, Maine. To console himself, he found the comfort of nature, and this connection was something he would cling to throughout his life. He was permanently lonely. He moved to Cleveland and studied at the Cleveland Art Institute and then at the William Merritt Chase School in New York and the National Academy of Design. 
He was also a poet and an essayist. In New York, he became friends with Alfred Stieglitz, who gave him a one-man exhibition at his 291 gallery. It was of his New England landscapes in 1912. Stieglitz said, I believed in you, and I believed in your work. At this time, there were two groups of American artists that were keenly aware of theosophy, oriental philosophy, occultism, and spiritualism. One of these was Arthur Dove. Another was Marston Hartley, Georgia O'Keeffe, John Marin, and the photographer Alfred Stieglitz. All of their work, though different from each other, added to this awareness, a feeling for the mystical qualities of the American landscape. Hartley also had a great friendship with Albert Pinkham Ryder, which influenced him for his whole painting life. Albert Ryder was a wanderer, like Hartley, only his wandering were the streets at night. His paintings are small and crackled because of the way he used his materials. Ryder's paintings were moonlight scenes, sometimes of the sea, but foggy, indistinct, and powerfully lit from within. And in order to get what he was after, he would use a deep black, which would mat out when it dried. He worked on these paintings over very long periods of time, and when a patron would become impatient, he would go to Ryder's studio and demand to see the painting. So Ryder would smear oil all over the paint to bring it up to its translucence. These layers of oil would never really dry, and later they would form fissures. And now, those fissures, it's part of the unintended effect and the mystery of the paintings. So, Peter is going to read the poem that Hartley wrote about Ryder, and if you look on our Artist Experience Facebook page, you can see his portrait of Ryder. Right. You know, um, you pointed out, you've always loved Ryder, too, and you pointed out to me at the Phillips, there's uh, at least one, and I think two, uh, of Ryder's paintings, and you would tell me about him. And I remember uh, the fun to to try and see the mystical um the mystical nature of, of the painting to actually get into a little bit of a mystical feeling myself. Um, it's it's uh, quite possible. I mean, that's what they, um, they were going for. So uh, Hartley, yes, Hartley was a poet. He also wrote poems about his own landscapes. But here we go with Al- Albert Ryder, Moonlightist. And you can see in this poem how he actually describes a painting And the painting, I think we're going to put up on Facebook. Moonlight severing his ancient mariner's beard and falling over the cliffs of his eyebrows, his lips fearing to touch what was no longer available. Night streaming through his listless fingers with the texture of impossible days to come, hanging like limpid moss from his prophet's shoulders this beautiful man suffering from the weight of majesty of dream because he had been denied substance of any other truth, dream so sumptuous, heavy with failures of death, radiant with shimmer of new belief. I am speaking of Albert Ryder, moonlightest as I knew him. I asked him to Christmas dinner, the lady said to me, who had a long time known him. He said he would come, and we waited two hours for him, the party eager to see him, and he did not come. Next time she saw him, oh, we were so disappointed you didn't come. I was there, said Ryder. I looked through the windows, saw the lovely lights. It was very beautiful. Oh, I just love that poem. I love that. <laughs> it's a sort of a, it starts out as a poem and ends as a short story, but um, it's, it's, yeah, it's very nice. Yes. So Hartley wasn't a traditionally religious man, but he embraced the spiritual ideas of 19th century transcendentalists who were Ralph Walter Emerson, Henry David Thoreau, and Walt Whitman. He was drawn to 
Eastern religions, such as Buddhism and Hinduism, and was familiar with more esoteric traditions, such as theosophy. Hartley's own spirituality pervades many of his paintings, especially his landscapes. His landscapes are easel-sized and also monumental, in the way that Cezanne made Mount Saint-Victoire a work of God. Hartley's were built out of rock and stone. They're strong and tough. While Mount Saint-Victoire dissolved into the heavens, Hartley's Mount Katahdin stands cold and hard forever against the sky. Cezanne paints the air. Hartley paints the eruptions of rock from the core of the earth. Every great painting is reaching out for something. The unfulfillment is what makes art great. Wow. The unfulfillment is what makes mm. art great. Yeah. Yes. That's good. Okay, Peter, my smart husband. So speak to <laughs> us about transcendentalism. Transcendentalism. <laughs> yes, you said um, he... Uh, described himself as a, anyone who describes himself as a transcendentalist, what that means is they get a lot of energy, direction, and inspiration from Emerson. Ralph, well, Wal, excuse me, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who really is a major font of American art and literature. Not all artists read philosophy. Uh, a lot of poets do. Um, you read philosophy because you need answers to the question, how should I be? And some artists need to answer that question. What am I doing? Why am I doing it? You know, what am I trying to accomplish? Uh, some don't. They already know. Picasso didn't need any help answering that question, <laughs> right? Um, but Marsden Hartley needed a lot of wisdom to find his place. And transcendentalism was clearly helpful. And I think an introduction to that wild American philosophy is just what we need right here on the Artist Experience Radio Show. You are listening to the Artist Experience Radio Show on WOWD 94.3 FM. And in honor of Pride Month, we're talking about the artist Marston Hartley. So transcendentalism was developed by a small group of individual thinkers in Boston and Concord, Massachusetts, in the years leading up to the Civil War. It was an attempt to reconcile the disharmony in the fragmented world they experienced. The violent calamity of the war um, could be seen as its extinction event. But, you know, in philosophy, there's nothing new under the sun. Old ideas find new life continuously in new situations and new vocabulary. People who are looking for the power to make their own way in life have been dipping into Emerson for over 150 years. The transcendentalists urged self-reliance and inner inquiry. More important than I think, than the metaphysical conclusions they reached were the narrations of their own experience and processes they journeyed to discover for themselves the truth of reality. And most important, truth was not fixed. Truth could not be dug up and found and provided to you. It couldn't be provided to you by your culture or by wise men because the reality of the world is so infinite that a stable final answer will never be found. Ideas will forever, for centuries upon centuries, expand further and further with no end. So for the individual who wants to be awake, there is no substitute. You must think for yourself. You must throw over the earlier ideas you once believed as you learn your weakness, and this continues forever. And you must trust and develop your own power and judgment. Transcendentalism is a practice devoted to recognizing and increasing your personal power, your imagination, and your judgment. I'll quote Emerson. In all my lectures, I have taught one doctrine, namely, the infinitude of the private man. Now, each of the individual transcendentalists was looking seriously into 
uh, the most important metaphysical question of the time, what is reality? And they all came up with different answers. After the Civil War, with the establishment of the modern research universities and the new departments of philosophy, their conclusions were no longer of much interest to professors trained in Germany. But in their fundamental approach, they contributed a supernova to our culture, whose energies are still uh, energizing artists and poets. Well, how did Emerson show the way into infinity, into power, into nature and consciousness? Emerson expressed himself with figures of speech, with metaphors. Let me give you an example, and you'll see that what I just said, in my own words, I think fairly straightforwardly, Emerson expresses with metaphors. This is part of the technique that an artist could pick up on. So the first essay, the first paragraph of his essay, Sense and the Soul. The first questions are still to be asked. Let any man bestow a thought on himself, how he came hither and whither he tends, and he will find that all the literature, all the philosophy that is on record have done little to dull the edge of inquiry. The globe that swims so silently with us through the sea of space has never a port, but with its little convoy of friendly orbs pursues its voyage through the signs of heaven to renew its navigation again forever. The wonderful tidings our glasses and calendars give us concerning the hospitable lights that hang around us in the deep. Still, so he's still talking in this metaphor of the earth and the stars moving through space. Do not appease, but inflame our curiosity. And in like manner, our culture does not lead to any goal, but its richest Results of thought and action are only new preparation. Well, thanks, Peter. I hope I can retain this because you've been reading about and talking about transcendentalism over the years. But if I hear it right, this is what an art form is, a questioning with paint or words or music, a way of finding out and a way of embracing your questions. Yes, and it's so liberating to to think that um, the answers are always coming in newer and newer. Uh, yeah, and if we have time in the second half of the show, let's, let's take another step. I mean, we haven't covered ex uh, transcendentalism at all. It's just a brief preface. Um, there's more that uh, Emerson could have offered to, to a painter like Marston Hartley. Okay, well, we're going to take a station break and a music break and come back to you in a few. Today and tomorrow And yesterday too The flowers are dying Like all things do Follow me close I'm going to Berlin, Ali. I'll lose my mind if you don't come with me. I fuss with my hair and I fight blood feuds. I contain multitudes. Got a telltale heart like Mr. Poe. Got skeletons in the walls of people you know I'll drink to the truth And the things we said I'll drink to the man that shares your bed I paint landscapes And I paint nudes I contain multitudes Red Cadillac and a black mustache rings on my fingers 
that sparkling flash Tell me what's next What shall we do Half my soul, baby, belongs to you Oh, well, I cannot frolic With all the young dudes I contain a multitudes I'm just like Aunt Frank Like Indiana Jones And them British bad boys, the Rolling Stones I go right to the edge I go right to the end I go right where all things lost are made good again I sing the songs of experience Like William Blake I've no apologies to make Everything's flowing All at the same time I live on a boulevard of crime I drive fast cars And I eat fast foods I contain multitudes Welcome back. You're listening to the Artist Experience Radio Show on WOWDLP Tacoma Park 94.3 FM. So in honor of Pride Month, we're discussing the American painter Marston Hartley, who lived from 1887 to 1943, closeted until decades after his death. He rarely discussed his private relationships in public, but it's now surmised that Hartley had several gay relationships throughout his life. At various points, he commemorated these relationships some more subtly in his early paintings and more overtly in his later paintings. And this made Hartley an important early touchstone for gay identity in the United States. He was a grouch. He was fabulously ugly. <laughs> sort of an Abraham Lincoln kind of way. He was a big man. He got fat. He had a long face. He had a high forehead deep-set light eyes under sloping brows, and he had a long nose, and overall, the look of an extraordinarily intelligent hound dog. He ate badly. He probably never sat down to a healthy meal in his life, and he never really overcame the basic problems of being alive. But that can be said of many of us. He was a sad but restless man, and he spent much of his life wandering the world in search of inspiration and rest. He was quieter about sex because at that time in New England, it was like asking to get a bullet in your head, longing for what you can't have. Berlin, where he lived sometimes, was a sexually liberated atmosphere. And he liked big, hunky guys. He painted them as totemic objects, torsos like tree trunks, to totem poles, experimental forms. Oh, there, there is a swimmer at our pool who might have walked right out of one of Hartley's paintings, but I haven't told him that. <laughs> but it's not the sweetness and tenderness of the male body that's idealized in Greece and the Renaissance. It's primitive. It's primal. Everything is a potential struggle, and that's what you want in painting. New knowledge adds tension. An artist is always reaching for something, and it's that tension of never quite getting it. And face it, that that's the impossibility, the limitation of the canvas and the materials that makes painting great. The critics saw his landscapes and still lifes as less worthy than the Berlin paintings, which were only a small fraction of his work. Critics don't make their reputations by being peripatetic, wandering through the work, seeing things freshly. They make their reputations by being able to read the times and the near future. They have to have a philosophical identity that artists can fit into, a philosophy that includes and excludes. And they can also influence artists to illustrate their philosophy, which gives them a lot of power in an expensive market. There will never be a critic that you will agree with completely, but the insights 
can always shed light. The critic Clement Greenberg drained regionalism of its place in the art. Well, Clement Greenberg developed a philosophy of art that was very narrow and only about himself, but it was a setback for Hartley in being recognized as important. It wasn't until Hartley gave himself an identity, the artist of Maine, that he became to be considered a great American artist. In the 1980s, the Whitney retrospective finally considered all of his work as worthy. And although Hartley painted many subjects, it was said that he was a genre painter, and that's true. It was the way he saw the subjects. They were crude and demanding, and as unpretty as you can get, even a rose in a vase. It is not the subjects, but how he recreates them. He described himself as being a transcendentalist. Peter, can you explain how transcendentalism might be important in his art? Right. Thank you. Um, you said that Hardly was lonely and troubled. I can't help noticing that the original New England transcendentalists were also solitary and troubled. It's, it's been hard for a long time to escape our culture and move out to new forms of being. Particularly, think of the 19th century, that horrifying time when people were <clears throat> losing faith, leaving the strict observance of the church, which had held everything together. This certainly includes Hartley, who was born in that century and was a Christian. Um, transcendentalism offered a unique portal to enter into freedom. Um, primarily, I think, through nature. It was the presence and human relationship to nature itself. In particular, nature as a manifestation of consciousness. Now, how, you may ask, is nature a manifestation of consciousness? Well, that's transcendentalism. And it's a secret which I am about to reveal to you. <laughs> okay, Peter. Yeah, I'm going to let I, you have it. Good. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, I wanted, I asked Sheila, could I say this? And she said, yes, let's try it. It's not that hard. Um, so don't worry. Um, so Emerson, at the, beginning, at the beginning of his career as a young man, figuring out what in the world he was going to do after he left his position as a minister uh, and after his wife died, uh, he recorded in his journals in 1835 this experience. Standing on the bare ground, my head bathed in the blithe air and uplifted into infinite space, all mean egotism vanishes. I become a transparent eyeball. I am nothing. I see all. The currents of the universal being circulate through me. I am part or particle of God. This single day or morning is like a psychedelic trip, right? It inspired Emerson for the rest of his life. I never exactly repeated, he never had it exactly as intense as that before, but he knew, he remembered it, and he knew he was put here on earth to explain this truth. He knew it wasn't new to him, he knew it had happened to people for thousands of years, and it would occur to people to come, whether or not they read him. You and I, Sheila, you and I remember just last week we had a conversation with our friend Jay about the German philosopher, philosopher Husserl. And when I described Husserl's vision of phenomenology, um, it was a way of looking at the world that I think of as not standard. And you said, well, that's the way I always look at the world. It's a natural way for an artist, but it's not standard for non-artists. So I'd like to try to repeat that idea here for our audience. <clears throat> it's basically um, what's called um, 
idealism. It's simple, it's, it's odd, uh, not standard, and it's fundamental to understanding art and poetry. If I'm right, this is a valuable lesson. What you get is listeners to the Artist Experience radio show. Okay. Emerson, in his lecture titled Transcendentalism, begins with an allusion, allusion to light. Light is always identical in its composition, but it falls on a great variety of objects. And by so falling is first revealed to us, not in its own form, for it is formless, but in theirs. So light, we see light, but we don't see light, we see the objects. So in this description, he is acknowledging that the tree that we see before us and which appears to us simply as the object is actually an experience, an experience mediated by light. And at this point, you may say, well, I know that. I've known that since elementary school. But in that scientific knowledge, which we all share, in that model of our experience in the world, where we understand that light is reflected and focused on our retina and processed by our brain, <clears throat> we're operating theoretically. And I'll jump in on myself here. I'm not, by saying theoretical, I'm not downgrading. It's not, I'm not leading to some philosophy that says we don't know the tree is there. No, no, the tree is there. That's not the issue. The issue is that the tree which we see before us is fundamentally an experience. The vision of the tree and the grove and the branches swaying elastically in the breeze and the birds swooping through the space, it's all an experience. And we can choose to look at it all as an experience, not an object. The object is there, but we're not experiencing the object, we're experiencing the experience. And the experience, here's crucial, it's not inside your head. The experience is out there. And you can choose to be aware of this in that way. You can practice paying attention to your attention. And when you do, when you look at the tree, you look at an experience. So this practice is idealism, it's transcendentalism. Now, you still may be struggling to see what's the difference between the scientific view and what I've just called transcendentalism. In the scientific view, you're imagining from the outside the active vision, theoretically, as a model involving an observer, an object, light, etc. In idealism's view, in the transcendental view, you are inside seeing your visions as visions. You can do this. It's a practice. It's similar probably to meditation. Um, I don't know for sure, but I think it is. You are paying attention to your attention. So, transcendentalism is idealism. But you don't just think about it. You do it. Practice seeing your vision as an experience rather than naively. And when you do, something extraordinary happens. This is the point. Something on the way towards that mystical experience described by Emerson in his journal. You feel the boundaries between yourself and the forest or the garden fade away. You feel you and the trees as being part of the same matrix. And you start to see details that you didn't see before. You see space and colors and textures that you didn't see before because they're not part of the way you normally see. It's, the way you normally see is getting through and, and looking at the important things and understanding where you are and how to get through. But <clears throat> when you start to see it in this way, uh, 
You see space and colors and textures. The world is bathed in a different light, which poetically you might call celestial, because it is celestial. This is something that anyone can do. You change your focus, and you don't have to study under a master lama for 20 years. You don't have to take psilocybin. It's right there. I'm not saying you'll be enlightened. I'm just saying this is an experience that's available. And it is the essential aesthetic experience. It's kind of a micro-religious experience that is recreated for us when we engage with a work of art. So, in the same way, we look into a scene, and it could be abstract or realistic, doesn't matter. You look within the picture frame, and an experience of space and time and color and intention rises, not within us, but there, in that space co-located with the art object. The art is not in the object. The art is not the object. It's not, the show, you know, the art is not the, just a, a demonstration of the virtuosity of the artist or a demonstration of how well you drawing can imitate life. None of that is the point. The art lies not in the object, not within the body of the viewer, but in the experience, in the meeting of the viewer and the art object out there on the wall. So I say, try it. You'll see more. It's not, it's not hard to see why this experience was so powerful that the transcendentalists who were struggling with guilt and doubt over leaving the church would make this transcendental experience the foundation of their search for a new truth. And it's not hard to see how Marsden Hartley found their discoveries so what I'm talking about is, is if, you, if you read a little bit, even a little bit about Emerson, you'll hear about some of the concepts like the oversoul, the common, you know, something like what Jung said, that there's this, this universal consciousness. Um, um, and uh, I view this as, sort of, as a poetic idea. Um, but they viewed it as actual, like the real reality. Um, so, but I don't think we need to worry. Uh, I certainly don't worry about whether it's true or not, whether it's the real reality or not. Um, we can still be transcendentalists. We can still enter our visions. Wow. Well, you know, Peter, when I'm listening to you say this, I'm thinking that is exactly where Marston Hartley is in his paintings. And and for you, the viewer, me, the viewer, to find that space that's between myself and his painting is what he was doing. And it's not some kind of manufactured abstraction, a sort of an expression of, oh, I see this differently, or no, (laughs) you know, or I can make the mountain red, and then you'll have to accept it. No, it's really what he could convey in his experience. Yeah, when you look look at the the red mountain, uh, in your imagination, you see a red mountain. You know, yeah. a red mountain built out of paint. And it's a funny world. It's a different world than the one we live in. But it is a world. So, Peter, something that you haven't talked about is your own experience with Qigong, which you have been doing every single morning for, I think, probably 23 years, if I can say it right. And when you go out to Qigong, to do Qigong, you're always half asleep and you go out in the early morning, no matter what the weather is. And when you come back, you have a 
your face looks completely different. You look like almost euphoric. And you'll come in and talk about how beautiful it is. And every once in a while, you will go into my studio. And then you come out and say, oh my God, I just looked at your painting. It's so wonderful. And so I assume that the experience that you have with Qigong is a similar experience to the kind of state that you're talking about. You know, I think you're right. It is a a transcendental experience. Um, It's uh, it is an experience of entering in, in, in your visual imagination, into into the surrounding air and 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 forest, and it really is nice to do it, you know, at in the forest or at a lake or something, um, or so, in a parking lot of a motel. <laughs> <laughs> parking lot of exactly. If you can't, if there's nothing else. That's it. I think you're right. Well, uh so I'm going to get back to Marston Hartley. In, uh, in 1926, well, Hartley wandered his whole life, and, and he went back and forth to Europe and then to the United States. And in 1926, he painted the Mount Saint-Victoire, just the same really? mountain same that mountain. Cezanne, Cezanne <laughs> painted. And then he painted Mount Tahadin. He was a man with no land, and he felt that the great the creation of great American art was rooted in native culture. So his disconnectedness it contributed to a rift with Stieglitz, and that never got repaired. And it's not clear what that was about. But while Stieglitz really gave him his start as an important artist, they were completely estranged. And Hartley was completely bowled over by Winslow Homer's paintings of the coast and the ocean. And he declared that he could do better. And honestly, Homer's seascapes are fantastic. And he, he, when he understood that in nature there was the presence of the higher power, he also had to explain himself to the world. And since his paintings, since his paintings were not really, they weren't, uh, they, since he went back and forth and he, they were, there was a certain inconsistency, especially in his subject matter, he declared himself, I'm the painter from Maine. And that's how come he became marketable which is really sad to me, but that's what happened. And then his landscapes of tempestuous coastlines and lobster fishing and lumber industries that proclaim the permanence and also the passage of time. So for the rest of his life, he lived in Provincetown, he lived in Bermuda, in Mexico, and in New Mexico, and also in Gloucester, Massachusetts, where he did amazing paintings of the fishing industry and in Nova Scotia, where when he went to Nova Scotia, he actually went to visit a friend of his, but he couldn't find him. And so a family took him in and they loved him, which is very extraordinary because he didn't seem like a very lovable person, but they had to have sensed his loneliness and his disconnectedness, mm-hmm. and especially the boys in this family just showered him with affection, and he loved it. And so he lived with his family, and then one night there was a terrible tragedy the three teenagers in the family, the two boys and the girl, took off on a lark, and it was storming. And they went out on their boat, and they were able to get to across the water where it was a terrible storm, and they decided to come back. And when they came back, they were all drowned. And it was here Marsden Hartley had opened his heart to this family and these boys and it was another terrible 
tragedy that he had to experience. The one of the girls in the family who didn't, who wasn't drowned, convinced Hartley to stay with the family and try to console them, which he did for a while. But then he knew he could never come back. He just could not have that experience. It was too devastating. So he had to leave. Wow. You know, when you say this, I, the paintings of Hartley in the, in the Phillips, you do see, despite the, the modernist style, you really do see into the family, into the family of fishermen. And, and it is not a nostalgic way. It's like a, maybe a documentary way, you know. It, it seems truthful. Yes, uh, yeah. yes, it's not, it, it isn't flattering or romantic, yeah. but I have a postcard of, a, of his painting, one of his paintings of the family, and there's three people in the family sitting across the table, and, they, and the table is kind of tilted as though it's in a storm itself. It's, and then the three empty chairs that are facing Mm. the the family oh uh, it's a beautiful painting beautiful. yeah so peter i thought you could take us out with another poem that was written by marston hartley so. yes um what here's one robin hood cove georgetown maine so this is a poem that actually accompanies uh, a painting of his so he um sort of like the Chinese artist, poets, he's able to write a poem and do a painting on the same subject. Robin Hood Cove. When evening comes to its gentle arias about along the dusky cove, and the blue heron flies like a slow arrow along the selvages of the cove, as if to give its signal for fine music, and the little birds who have been so warm all day have gone in along the pine spills for their tithe of rest. The white bridge, joining bank to bank of the tidal river, takes the hushed tones of evening to it ingratiatingly. The gulls have nothing more to say to each other. Fold wings as pure hands are folded for a silent thought. I stand with them all in high salute, saying to myself, thanks, well done, beautiful things. I receive my width of grace from you and am put to rest with evening singing. Very nice. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Marston. So I think that we've really covered Marston Hartley, as much as we wanted to, and I'm so glad we did this. Yes, I, do. I am too. And I want to thank Steve Hoffman, our program director, for suggesting that we do a Pride tribute. Yes. Well, thanks for listening. Please listen to other shows, especially the show of our friend Gail Behrens on Night Ride Home every other Sunday night, singers and songwriters. And following this show at 10 o'clock, Bobby Hill and Clay Fink with this music, avant-garde jazz, maybe, I'm sure, the only place you can get this music here on WOWD. Yes. Goodbye for now, and we'll see you in two weeks. Mm-hmm.